You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Start with a question today. I wonder if you're familiar with the acronym GOAT. The acronym GOAT stands for the greatest of all time. The greatest of all time. Here are some, here are some pictures according to our society of some of the greatest of all time. By the way, if you disagree with what you see, you can take it up with Google, all right? You can argue with Google. But evidently, these are, you know, arguably the greatest in their respective sports. Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan, Babe Ruth. Serena Williams, and you could put, you know, many other, notice Tom Brady didn't make the list? No offense, no offense, Mr. Brady, I'm sure you are the greatest of all time, but you're just not making, there's only room for four, all right, there's only room for four. All right, there's another one here, greatest composers of all time, Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, at the end there, Frederick Chopin, and just like the brilliance of these men, in many, many, many cases, used by the Lord in such amazing ways. Again, some of the greatest of all, still having massive impact upon our day. Here's some of the greatest leaders of all time. This next one here, depending on who you ask, whatever, but certainly some of those influential leaders in the past couple hundred years. You could say that. Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa. I mean, these are, these are significant goats, right? Greatest of all time, at least arguably you could say that. It's the Olympics right now, and we live in the nation of Canada. Let's get some... Patriotism going here, so hey man, give it up, give it up, it's good, as they should. I'm personally a fan of the Olympics, and, and I get, you know, sometimes get a tear in my eye as the, as the Canadians are doing really well, and I do feel a strong sense of patriotism, so we have Scott and Tessa here, and they're, they're now in the conversation for greatest, I wouldn't say ice dance is necessarily my first go-to sport, but at least it's something I totally respect, and I'm so glad when they win, and it's awesome, and they're in the conversation for greatest of all time in terms of ice dancers, and then just this past week, this next one, this is very, very appropriate, isn't it? So amen, amen, we honor, we honor Dr. Graham. Amen. We think about that, you know, I mean, again, in terms of people reached, the greatest evangelist of all time, the millions of people that God used him to reach, the hundreds and hundreds of thousands that came to Christ through the gospel, as Billy stood up and said, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. It's, it's, just, it's just remarkable. What I love about Dr. Graham's life, too, is um, for that many decades, without controversy for the Lord. I mean, think of all that's happening in our day. To be able, with integrity, faithfulness to his marriage, faithfulness to the Lord. I mean, if you don't have a respect and admiration for that, I don't really know what to say. His cause and his leadership for good, it's truly remarkable. And um, in light of the series that we're in right now, I saw this quote this week. I go, it's perfect. I share it with the people. It's put up right now. Billy said this. Notice, Billy, a citizen of heaven. Yes, he is. Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. That's so good. I will have gone into the presence of God. Why? Because he's a citizen of heaven, right? How true, how encouraging, how appropriate. And if he's ever realized that truth of that statement, that he's a citizen of heaven, he knows it now. Everything he's lived for now, it all culminates in the one person, Jesus Christ the Lord. Now, why do we go through those goats right here? Well, today in our passage, we have a couple of the greatest of all time, for sure. 
Our passage, you could argue, Christologically, so meaning Christ-centered text, could be the greatest passage in the New Testament in terms of a passage centered on Christ. Within our passage, we have two main elements, the greatest of all time. We are going to see the greatest humiliation of all time. The greatest humiliation of all time. And then we're going to see the greatest exaltation. Like, it's not even close. Like, like Jesus Christ, the greatest exaltation of all time, which means then, within our text, we have the ultimate goat. The greatest of all time, who's actually not a goat, a lamb. He's the lamb of God. Jesus Christ, the greatest person who's ever lived. Hands down. Philippians 2, verse 5. Bibles open, hearts ready, I pray. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See that right there? Have this mind, which is yours. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, which is yours. He's talking to believers right here. Have this mind. Grab onto this mind. Have this mind which is yours. It's yours in, notice, not yours as you earn favor and as you try harder, which is yours in Christ. Is Christ in you? If Christ is in you, then you have the ability to have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. And everything that follows is the example, the preeminent example of the mindset we are to have as we claim to follow Jesus Christ. His example becomes ours to follow after. Have this mind among yourselves. Notice the way we think. Our our mind determines again ultimately how we live. What fall? Verse 6. Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right there, verses 6 to 8, the greatest humiliation ever of all time. Now transition, the greatest exaltation of all time, verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, tell me, Lord, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Again, two points. The greatest humiliation, the greatest exaltation, number one. The greatest humiliation of all time. Verse 5, setting up verses 6 through 8. Now, before we come to the incarnation explained, verses 6 to 8, God takes on flesh to appreciate the level of humiliation that Jesus underwent. We have to understand what did Jesus leave behind? Where did he come from? Jesus, when he came to earth, he left pre-incarnate glory. He perfectly existed in a mind-blowing, in some ways inconceivable unity and harmony and beauty with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The triune God, forever, eternally existing, in perfect relationship, in love, in harmony, in unity. This is where Jesus was, eternally, as I said, eternally existing. So think about that. Here he is, and he allows himself to leave this pre-incarnate glory and then subject himself 
to live with us as human beings. So this is what makes verse 6 now become more astounding, okay? Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, pre-incarnate glory, God himself, perfect in every way, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, so what's critical to understand here as we try to make sense of verse 6, and by the way, what we're about to go through today, it's going to be a little bit heady. The theology is incredible, it's profound, but I'm telling you, take the time to learn it. Refuse to sit here and think about lunch or think about what part of the Olympics you're going to watch later on or think about what you're going to... I shouldn't even mention those things. And I'm like, what is for lunch right now? And what is on later? Just, I'm telling you, take the time right now. Just be, You're here. You might as well take advantage of it. If you learn what we're about to go through right now, you are among the few Christians who could actually explain Philippians 2, 5 through 11. We're not being taught this. People don't know this. They're not being discipled. They can't explain. They can't walk you through the theology we're going to look through. They don't have an appreciation for the incarnation and the humiliation of Christ and exaltation. They don't even know. That's a problem. You and I have the chance today to learn, to relearn, to be excited about this, and then, listen, that we can disciple others. You can mentor others for the rest of your life. That's our opportunity right now. Take advantage of it. Don't fall asleep. God, help us stay awake. It's incredibly beautiful truth. So, how do we understand verse 6? It's the, if you're taking notes, write down these two phrases. Is this. It's the difference between the personal equality of Jesus and the positional equality of Jesus. Personal equality versus positional equality. Equality. You're like, well, what do you mean by that? Let me explain, okay? When Jesus leaves heaven, he doesn't surrender his deity. He doesn't cease to become any less than fully God. He has always been internally existing as fully and completely God. So when he leaves the glories of heaven, then what's happening? He relinquishes his positional equality with God. He is no longer in the state of pre-incarnate glory. He, he subjects himself to utter humiliation to take on human flesh and dwell with us as sinners and to the point he is mocked, ridiculed, even killed by those that he has created. It's just, it's astoundingly massive to try to wrap your minds around the level of humility. So when he comes to earth, he doesn't for one moment cease to be God. Rather, what he does is he takes on full humanity as well. Here's the chart that hopefully you've seen before. We've gone through this many times in our church's history because it's one of my favorite theological charts as well. It's the work of Christ. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 explains the best single text in the Bible that explains this whole pattern, what's happening right here, okay? Jesus in pre-incarnate, perfect harmony, unity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he allows himself to be humbled with the incarnation. See, this is why the incarnation, like, what is incarnation? He takes on flesh. Christmas, he takes on flesh. He's here. The angels announce it. The shepherds run. It's such a huge deal because God is on earth. I mean, just think about that. Eternally existing in glory, and God the Son says, I'll go. And he comes down and lives and takes on human flesh, born to a virgin. 
and becomes a person. I mean, that's, that's, that's unbelievable when you really see it for what it is. Then he lives this earthly life because he had to, to live a perfect life that he might make payment for our sin. I mean, if this wasn't humiliation enough, then to go here and be falsely accused and ridiculed and mocked and scorned and then to actually die at the hands of those that very heart beats because you allow them to and you died their hands? Come on, come on. That, that is crazy humiliation. And this is what's happening. We're going to see there. We're going to see in a second that the humiliation leads, of course, to the exaltation. But to understand, this is what's happening here. Jesus leaving pre-incarnate glory because he loves you and I so much. He's willing to take the lower seat and subject himself to the flesh of man. I mean, astounding, wonderful, amazing. So, Jesus never ceases to become fully God. He keeps his personal equality as God, but he relinquishes his positional equality. Think of it this way, ready? God the Father was never spit upon. God the Father was never mocked. God the Father was never beaten. God the Father was never crucified. In fact, I was reading recently in the Gospel of Mark, and I just took the time to be able to, it'll be on the screen for you here, I want you to see it, but I took the time to underline or circle, you'll see in the bold and italicized parts. I just, I, I never want this to get old for me. Easter's approaching soon. And I was just blown away. Listen, this is God on earth. Look at, look at. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. You know how many is in a battalion? 600 men. Whether it was that much, it was hundreds though, hundreds of soldiers all gathering around this one figure, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Remember, God on earth. Look what they do to him. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, just mocking him, ridiculing him, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to salute him in total mocking. Hail the king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed. Now, what, what just blows my mind here, okay? At some point, these soldiers, whoever it was, how many it was, taking a reed and, and striking Jesus Christ. At that moment, you are taking a physical instrument and you are hitting the Lord of all creation. At some point, these soldiers, whether in their life before they died, maybe they came to Christ after their other, who, who, who knows? At some point in their life, they would realize, I was hitting the God of all, I was hitting the sovereign God. And if it wasn't in their life, then when they died, they would face Jesus Christ face to face. In that moment, they would realize, I was striking the very God who made the heavens and the earth, the Lord of the universe, the sovereign God over all creation. The King of Kings, I was striking him with a mocking, scornful tone and hitting him as one of his creatures. I mean, that. That's just crazy. And that's the reality. I think it gets worse for me, though. What happens next? And spitting on him. Is there any greater insult than spitting on someone? When you talk about disregarding someone and just belittling, to spit in the face of God? And kneeling down on homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on them. Hundreds of soldiers gathered on Jesus. And they led him out. Yeah, this little thing that happened at the end. And they led him out to crucify him. They're about to murder and put to death the very son of God. You see, the very fact that Jesus was willing to leave pre-incarnate glory is the greatest demonstration of humility and love ever. 
And remember, remember, personalize it, love. Personalize it. He did this for you and me. Like right now, he did this for you. For you. He did this for me. There's no greater demonstration of taking the lower seat. Think of how unwilling we are to demonstrate humility in our lives. For example, how did the milk bag thing go this past week? And if you weren't here last week, you have no idea what we're talking about. But think about it, right? Our unwillingness to have small acts of humility and nothing because we're so self-centered. And here is Jesus in pre-incarnate glory, willing to subject himself to take on flesh, to be mistreated by his own creation, and ultimately to die at the hands of those that he allows to exist in the first place. Why would he do this? Here's why. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That's why. Because he loves us so much. Amazing. And now look at verse 7. But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of of men. Now the question that is important to answer here and ask is, what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? What did Jesus empty himself of? The Greek word for emptied himself is kenosis, which has developed into the kenosis theory, which, by the way, is a false theory. What the kenosis theory teaches is that when Jesus came to earth, he emptied himself of some of his divine attributes. So when he comes and takes on flesh, he's no longer omnipotent, all-powerful. He's no longer omniscient, all-knowing. That's what the kenosis theory teaches. But we must understand and reject that wholeheartedly that Jesus, again, when you're fully God, you cannot become less than God. In the incarnation, again, in the incarnation, when Jesus comes and takes on flesh, his deity was not subtracted. Humanity, as we said, was added. So take a king, for example. When you're a king and you have authority and rule over a land, if you decide one day to step off your throne and to put on peasant garments and you walk around among the people, you don't cease to be king. You still hold all the authority. Just because you're not wearing your fancy robe or sitting on the throne doesn't mean you're no longer still in charge. The king, of course, still has all authority. He's the one, again, who's reigning and ruling. That's what's happening with Jesus. He's on earth. He's dressed as a peasant, but he rules the universe. He is the one who's in charge. He will judge the living and the dead. He just happens now to be fully God and now fully man. I love the, the song that we sing sometimes, This is Amazing Grace, one of the versions by Jeremy Riddle. He says, Kind of at one of the ending parts, he's, he says this. He says, what kind of king leaves his glory? What kind of king leaves his throne? He says, what, what kind of king leaves his glory to die? Yes, his glory to die. Tell me, what kind of king does that? What kind of king leaves pre-incarnate glory to die for his people? How many kings in history have sent his people to die for him? You go, you die, so I can keep my glory. Our king... He comes and leaves his throne and subjects himself to the worst possible death that he might die, that we might live. What kind of king does that? An awesome king, a loving king, a beautiful king. Listen, the, the king of kings. And you see verse seven, taking the form of a servant. So the greatest humiliation of all time continues. This is beautifully pictured in John 13. When it says that Jesus laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, 
he began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, this humility here is almost incomprehensible, right? Because the towel in Jesus' day was taken up by only slaves. The lowest of the low took on a towel and washed people's feet. But here the Son of God is doing this. The Son of God, the God of glory, he takes a slave's towel and he bends down and begins to wash his disciples' feet. No wonder Peter says, you can't do that, Lord. Jesus like, I have to. I also wonder about the disciples at what point later on, because they didn't fully understand what was happening. They were constantly in this tension of like kind of getting a bit, but missing a whole lot. At what Were they lying in bed one night? They woke up at 1.45 in the morning, and their eyes opened. They're thinking about all the events that have taken place. They, they remember this event in the upper room, Jesus washing their feet, and all of a sudden, their eyes go so wide, they shoot up out of bed, and they're sitting there, and they're wiping his eye. What's wrong? What's wrong? Ha, ha, ha. Can you believe it? God washed my feet. God! He washed my feet. And something we all can, we all can register. All, every single one of us right now. At what point the disciples understand as they looked upon all that took place and they said in amazement and wonder, they come to the understanding of this, God died for my sins. God! The perfect, glorious, sovereign, creator, infinite, eternal, majestic, and holy, and omnipotent, and omnipresent, and omniscient, is this incredible, unfathomable, infinite God. He died for my sins. Every single one of us can go through that process right now and be humbled by it. Every single one of us. That's not, not just the disciples. Think about it. Let yourself ponder this truth. How does that not humble us? How does that not humble us? Why would he do such a thing? Because he loves you that much. Because he loves you that much. Being born in the likeness of men, in verse 8, notice. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Alistair Begg wisely and astutely says this. He says, instead of asking the question of what did he empty himself of, here's the better question and biblical question, what did he empty himself into? And Alistair Begg continues, he says this. He says, Jesus did not approach the incarnation saying, what's in it for me? What do I get out of it? Rather, in coming to earth, what Jesus said was, I don't matter. But Jesus, you're gonna be laid in a manger like a feeding trough. You're the God of glory. It doesn't matter. Jesus, you're going to have nowhere to lay your head. You're existing in the perfect heavenlies, and you're going to subject yourself, and at times you'll have nowhere to sleep. It doesn't matter. Jesus, you will be an outcast. You will be a stranger. You will be falsely accused by your very own creation. It doesn't matter. Jesus, they will nail you to a cross, and your own followers will deny you and desert you. And Jesus says, that's okay. Because I came to love and I came to save. This is what it means he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and dying on a cross. It's the greatest humiliation of all time. Nothing comes close. Nothing comes close. Number two, 
the greatest exaltation now of all time. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that's an amazing couple of sentences there. Notice the word therefore. See what's happening here? In a very strong way. This is the Father's response to the humility of the Son. His obedience to the cross, therefore, God has highly exalted him. His humiliation leads to his exaltation. And loved ones, let's just personalize this right now. Isn't this one of the grand themes of Scripture? What God exalts the humble. Again, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Question, question, question. Are you a proud person? Well, if every one of us is, has a little bit of honesty, we'd all say, yep, I sure am. But think about it. Is the direction of your life pride? Are you living for self-advancement, self-ambition, self-sufficiency, self-promotion, self-glory? Like the way you talk, the way you think, are you living for the accumulation of stuff that just blesses you? Is your life rooted in pride? I'm not stupid enough to stand up here and tell you I'm humble. I'm not. I'll tell you I believe in humility. I believe, I believe God upholds the proud and gives grace to the humble. The, the whole system of God is he exalts those who know they need him. He works in brokenness. It's all over scripture. Christ is our example. Christ humbled himself. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And then so many things of Scripture are saying to us, as we get lower, we decrease, Christ increases, and all the satisfaction of life is found. Let me ask you again. Is pride the theme of your life? If you are moving towards pride, remember, remember, ready? You gotta just, it's wisdom time. If pride is your direction, you lose every time. You can't win. You think you're going to win. You'll never win. I think about this stuff, I don't know, 40, 50 times a day. Like, really? Like, what am I about to say and what I'm about to do and where I'm about to go and, and how I'm about to present myself? I mean, all, like, over and over and over again. If it's pride, Robbie, you lose. If it's a pursuit of humility, you win. Why? Because God says so. That's why so many people lose. They don't care about what's true. They care about themselves. God help us. But notice here, Jesus, he's highly exalted. Literally, that is um, hooper, hyper-exalted in the original. Um, Super-exalted, exalted with exaltation, the highest possible exaltation. The phrase is superlative. Jesus is in a class all to himself. There's never been an exaltation like this, and there never will be again. You gotta see Jesus for who he is. He is so beautiful, so wonderful, and so powerful. And look at verse 9. And God has bestowed, gave, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Growing up, my mom used to sing some songs to me as a, as a small child. And one of the songs she sang was, Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Let all heaven and earth proclaim. I love this line. Kings and kingdoms shall all pass away, but there's something about that name. You're a child and you're listening. Your mom's singing like hundreds of times. She's singing this over you. And you're just like, 
Kings and kingdoms shall all, isn't that so true, right? Think of all the kings and kingdoms that have come and gone. They, they're raised up. Think of all the kings and kingdoms right now in our world. People think they're so great. Think they're so great. All these celebrities think they're so great. Everything's about them. They just, more power, more this, more that. They just come and go, though. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. And the word of the Lord contains the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something about that. Through every generation, the name of Jesus Christ, more people are being saved now than ever before in Jesus' name. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. Isn't it so true, right? Something about the name, the name of Jesus. You walk into a situation, you say, God, 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 God. People are like, you know, whatever. But then you say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And you can almost, you can almost feel the tension immediately. Jesus. Boo! Jesus. <laughs> it's amazing because there's something about that name. It's the name above every name. And we're going to see here in verse 11 as well, the name that could be referred to, Jesus Christ, is Lord. He carries the title, the name of Lord, ruler, sovereign God, the one who is divine. His deity is full. This is Jesus. Warren Wiersbe had a really good insight too. He said, and as men buried Jesus in the tomb, so the soldiers were, they took the body of Jesus, placed in the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, of course, has something to do with that as well. That's the last thing that men would ever do to Jesus again. God the Father's like, as soon as you bear my son in the tomb, you're done, I'm taking over. You will never mistreat him again. You won't lay a hand on him again. When Jesus Christ is buried, God the Father's like, my turn. He steps in and he says, I'm gonna exalt him to the highest possible place and give him the name above every name. And from that moment on, for the rest of eternity, there's not one human being that will ever be able to mistreat him, do any harm to him, because he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. He is God, he is creator, he's the ruler of the universe, he's the great I am. Again, verse 10, so that, so that, at the name of, do you see the result? At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, heaven, earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does this mean? Every person who's ever lived, ever, will bow their knee and confess with tongue, Jesus is Lord. This means Jesus has no rival. He has no rival. What about Satan? Satan, as it's been said, technically is Jesus' lackey. He's here for now. He holds power. He's a formidable opponent for us for sure. But when it comes down to it, loved ones, it won't last long. I mean, Satan is done for. Have you ever read the return of Jesus in Revelation 19? I mean, I commend that to you. You look at what happens in Revelation 19. Jesus comes riding on the white horse. On his robe and on his thigh is written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords, possibly his greatest title ever. He comes in, and the armies of the enemy, they're gathering against God and Christ. And when you're reading Revelation 19, you're almost like, wow, this is going to be like an intense battle. It's going to go back and forth and seesaw, and ups and downs, and Jesus will win, of course, at the end, but it might be a great struggle. So then all the enemies of God, they're all gathering together for this big battle. But then it says, Jesus comes, and from his mouth comes a sword. And so what happens is, is you're kind of watching Armageddon, which is what it is, and you're watching this great final battle happen, and you blink and it's over. Like Jesus speaks the word and the entire enemy is obliterated, incinerated, and entirely decimated by the very word of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing remotely that leads us to see there's any kind of struggle at all. Jesus speaks, it's done, he wins. Just like that. 
You read the Bible, man. You have it too. Revelation 19, that's awesome. That's how powerful, that's how incredible, that's how amazing our Savior is. Yeah, he came humble the first time. He's coming back humble. He's coming back powerful, man. He's coming back to deal with those who oppose him. Just think about that. All the struggle of today, all the things that are going, Jesus speaks the word and bam, it's over. It's over. Because he's been given the name of every name. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, let's be clear, okay? That does not mean all will be saved. It means that every person ever will bow before him. Some will do it out of extreme love and worship. You can't wait to bow your knee and confess him as Lord. Do it right now. But others will be forced to bow and confess in horror and despair because they have hated Jesus their entire life in disbelief and in human arrogance. I've always been amazed at the truth, too, that every person who's ever lived will bow and confess. Every created being will bow and confess. Think about it. Every king who's ever existed, every king, every ruler, every celebrity, every single one, every politician, every person who's ever lived at some point will bow the knee and confess with tongue, whether they want to or not, that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, I gotta ask this right now. Where do you, and this is, this is a very important moment now, where do you find yourself today? Because remember this, in, in, in all of life, right, in all our pursuits, in all our desire for financial success, in all the desire to have stuff, in all the gadgets, and all the things we do, and all the time we want to spend in leisure, and all the pursuit of career and accomplishments, and all these things, and trying to remember that at the end of the day, there are two types of people in this world, two types of people, and all, all of eternity is faced with this question Are you for Jesus or against him? All of life is summarized in that very position Are you for Christ or against him? You could be the king. You could be a peasant pauper. It doesn't matter. It's the only question that matters. You have all the riches, you could have nothing. You could be the most successful career and be completely failure in the terms of the word. It doesn't matter. Are you for Christ or against him? That's all that matters at the end of life. Wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. Let me ask you right now. Are you for Christ or are you against him? Now, now, here's a word of warning. Even Pastor George alluded to this earlier in the service. Some, without it, some of you here right now, some of you, you think you're in. You think you're saved because you go to church a few times or you, you, you know a bit of Christianese and you're not like the neighbor down the street. But have you actually experienced a relationship with Jesus Christ where you are made alive being born again by truly repenting of sin and embracing by faith Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within you and fruit is being seen through your life. I'm not asking you to be perfect, but I'm asking you to follow the one who is. Do you know that you know that you know that you are alive in the Lord Jesus Christ? Again, it's just a moment of transparency. I'm not in a rush right now. Like this is life and death. If I came up to you right now and said, are you genuinely alive in the Lord Jesus Christ? Could you with authenticity before Christ say, yes, absolutely? Or is there this, been this doubt? Some of you right now, he's like, I know I'm not. I, I guarantee I'm not. Today's your day. Today, some of you have been playing church for too long. There's some young children here right now, man. You've, you've learned how to say the right things to your parents. 
You know what to do. You show up at the right times. But there's no way the Lord's truly real in your life. And you know it too. Because if we watch what you did during the week, that'd be a disaster. You're either for Christ or against him. Some of you are here right now, you've never heard this message ever. You've never heard the gospel. What is the gospel? It's good news of Jesus Christ. That God so loved you, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will never, ever die, but have everlasting life. You say, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. My sin shuts me out of heaven. I need a savior to rescue me in grace. I can't earn it. He offers it freely. Let's look at our chart that we saw at the beginning here. I want you to see this, okay? Watch how beautiful this is, okay? Pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. Ready, ready? Jesus Christ leaves glory. He subjects himself to human flesh. He lives a perfect life that he might die on our behalf, making payment for our sin. Remember, the reason Jesus Christ, as the hymn says, it was my sin that held him there. My sin. My sin, but your sin, put Jesus on the cross. He died for us. He took on God's wrath. He suffered the punishment we deserve. He died. What was it? But the moment he dies, and then when God receives the payment, Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. When he is raised from the dead, that's the Father saying, I've accepted payment in full. All sin has been paid for. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. The exaltation now begins. Okay? Death is defeated. Anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ who confesses him as Lord, who accepts his grace in their lives, forgiveness of sins, they also have defeated death. That's why Billy Graham is where he is. He's not afraid. He preached in heaven all the time. The moment he dies, he starts to live. Even in Philippians, right? To live is Christ, to die is gain. It's far better for me that I should die. I'll be with Christ, Paul says, right? Jesus ascends. This is where we are right now. He's sitting at God's right hand right now, waiting for the moment when he is called to return, the white horse. He comes, the future reign, depending on your eschatology, and then eternal glory. Watch this. Jesus comes from glory, humiliates himself in unfathomable humility and love, dies for us, swoops up all who believe in him by faith and grace. He is raised from the dead, giving us new life, and goes and returns all the way back to glory. Jesus loves us so much. He leaves glory, comes down, gets us, and returns to glory that we might reign with him forever in glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay? This is the gospel. This is what Jesus has done, that you would think he could come and get me. And the reason he hasn't returned yet, he's still picking people up and raising them from the dead. And every person who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord, they then have the guarantee, as Colossians says, of the hope of glory. The hope of glory, Christ in me, Christ in me, I will never die. Where are you today? Are you for Jesus or are you against him? There's no in-between, no purgatory, man doesn't exist. There's all this halfway stuff. You're either for or against. I'm telling you today, if there's any doubt in your mind, do you know that you know that you know that you are with the Lord Jesus Christ and you love him? I'm telling you, why would you hesitate one moment? Why would you wait another second before giving your life completely to Jesus Christ? What's at stake? Eternity's at stake. It's amazing how important we think this life is, man. Oh, I love my life, I love my life, I love my life. Yeah, but those who love their life will lose it, Jesus says. And those who lose their life for Jesus' sake will find it and spend the rest of eternity with him in glory. 
Jesus invites you today again. He says, I loved you so much I died for you. All you have to do is confess me as Lord, believe in your heart that your sins need to be forgiven and you will never die. You will never, ever die. God, save lives. God, save lives in our midst today. You're here right now. You're in overflow. Listen, listen, this is for you. This is for you today. Not a coincidence. Oh, may the Lord move. Let's, let's pray. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the beauty of the gospel. It's so incredible. What kind of king leaves his glory to die? Seriously, what kind of king does that? An awesome king, a humble king, a loving king, the king of kings. Holy Spirit, I pray right now you are granting faith to people in this room. There are many, Lord, who need to receive you as Lord and Savior. There are many. There always are. Who are they? I don't know. You do. But I pray today's the day. Child, child, do not hesitate. Do not hesitate. See the arms of God the Father wide open and looking directly at you. And he says to you, come child, come, embrace me. Run no longer, run to me. Come child, I'll take every sin, every sin, every sin, every sin, past, present, future, every single one, I'll take it, I'll take it. Jesus says, I'll take it. I want to give you life. Not the easy life, but the hope of eternal life, the glorious life that is to come. Who today needs to bow their knee while they can in willingness and confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord? All you have to do is do that, and the Bible says you will be saved. You will be saved. Faith, grace, love. Holy Spirit, help us now to worship in response to what you've communicated to us by your word today. Because what other response is there? This is where life is lived. We pray this in Jesus' name.